two, one, two, three. The ghosts are calling out of work today. They got way better things to do than work some nine to five. They got no use for living, breathing currency. But we all do because we're still alive. Welcome to the good, the rather spooky, where we talk about the hulking and the skulking and the revenge choking. Mm. Can you imagine? Kinky. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. kind of rage and <laughs> neglect does somebody need to feel to feel uh, like they need to revenge choke someone? I don't know. I, well, I mean, I mean, from, uh, you know, outside of the context of what we're going to be talking mm-hmm. about today, not a lot, but also yeah. within the context of this, a lot. A lot. Quite a bit. Have you revenge bit, choked actually. ever? I don't think I've ever revenge choked or been revenge choked. I have not, but I did see Anakin do it. Oh, okay. In the in uh, he did Star Wars Tress. Yes, in the Star Wars. Saw War. him do that. Yeah, in the Star oh, Wars. Yeah. You know that's my brother's favorite Star Wars, and Tress? I make fun of him. Yeah, huh. all the time for it because <laughs> why? <laughs> but listen, we're not here to talk about that. We're not here to talk about Anakin Skywalker. We're yeah. we're here to talk about a different moody prince. Yes, we. Do you want to take a whack at a good rap synopsis? Sure. Um. I found a friend. Um, some assembly required. <laughs> <laughs> some assembly required. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I try. Uh, do, you, do you have one for us? I do. I do. Eight foot tall goth prince just wants to bond with his college dropout twink father. <laughs> That's incredibly specific. I don't know how anyone yeah. can not know what we're talking about at this point. I, I don't know either, especially since I'm pretty sure I said that in like one of our intro episodes because we're talking about another one of my favorite pieces. I'm sorry, not sorry, you guys, but this podcast is essentially my recycling bin for all my research papers and yeah. favorite things. And I... I I will say it's a pretty good place for you, the listeners, to be learning about these classic monsters. We've we've hit yeah. Dracula. We're moving over to another one of the big boys, Frankenstein. Well, cha 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 Frankenstein's monster, I guess. But well, yeah, we'll get there. Um, That's the joke, isn't it? Is that everybody yeah. likes to yell about how Frankenstein is is the doctor? Uh huh. Not the monster, but like if you're wise, like knowledge is knowing that Frankenstein was the doctor, but wisdom is knowing that Frankenstein was the monster. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. We're gonna uh-huh, be yeah. we're gonna be uh, spelling it out for y'all today. Uh, what regal monsters look like and and who they are. So, where do you want to start? Just with the beginning of the story or so i thought i just mention here's the thing is i cannot uh as a dramaturg as a trained dramaturg i like to give context to the pieces that i'm working on yeah but the problem is the context for this piece is my wife mary shelley oh yes and there is no way that i can condense all of her wonder and glory and beauty and my simpness <laughs> in like one episode, and I would right. really kind of like to get to the plot of it without disrespecting my wife. So sure. I will simply say that uh, this story is basically Frankenstein is like the most successful Nana Remo project of all time. Hmm. 
um, before we before we head into it, I just want to tell a fun little story. Uh, Mary Shelley and the gang, Mary Shelley and her hoes, which included <laughs> Lord Byron, uh, fellow Percy, writer hose. fellow writer hoes, Percy, her husband, John William Polidori, who wrote The Vampire, and mm. I like how we've covered Carmilla and Dracula. <laughs> And in both of those episodes, we're like, oh, by the way, this isn't the first novel, but mm-hmm. we haven't actually covered the first vampire novel yet. Yeah, we'll wait till next year. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> John can wait. Yeah. Um, but so, and, and, and Mary's sister, Claire. So they're all there in this little chateau in Geneva, and it's miserable weather, and Lord Byron is like, what if we did a writing contest? <laughs> and everyone was like, oh, it's great, because we're all writers. We write. Sure, let's do that. And Byron was like, okay, make it spooky. And they were like, Byron, <sighs> do we have to? Well, Mary Shelley <laughs> writes in her journal, she says uh, of this story that one night in particular, she woke up from a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Went to the window and saw that the moon was unreasonably big. Huh. Like, it was the biggest she'd ever seen it. It was, felt unnatural, and she just felt like looking out over the moors, the the estate of the chateau where they were staying, that something was out there. Mm. She thought she saw a figure on the horizon lit up by this massive moon. Yeah. And it's actually really interesting because astronomers figured out that yes the moon was literally like closer to earth i think oh, wow. the moon literally was bigger at this point yeah, yeah um but mary just described it that way and she was so impacted by this nightmare and this moon and this figure supposedly on the horizon that she wrote not not at the chateau it it turned into a couple years of a project actually so i guess it's not the most successful hmm. nano remo didn't happen in a month, didn't happen here, but it was the start, the impetus of mm-hmm. what would become Frankenstein. So I just love that setting because it's so gothic. And of course, yeah. it was written by the mother of all hardcore goths, Mary Shelley. She who lost her virginity on her mother's grave. Mama and Mia. I just, she's so, she kept her husband's calcified heart in a pouch, in a secret compartment in her desk. And like, I just, want that like Mm. if someone wants to give me their heart so that i can put it in my desk that would be a plus would love that would love that um but i just think that that's a great way to start this off i mean we i could talk forever about mary shelley about what she was going through um but i suppose i'll save some of that for the end and we can just hop right into the plot um today We're going to be talking about just the book. Mm. We debated on whether or not we wanted to watch the 1930s Boris Karloff version. Um, kind of like with last week's Dracula, I don't see why. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Right. And Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is the originator of the science fiction genre. Mm-hmm. And it is one of the major staples in horror and in gothic horror. It is great just by itself. Heck yeah. And Vale, I understand you, you have a bit more of an extensive kind of relationship with Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, just with past uh, theses and the nature yeah. like that. 
Yeah, I'm sorry, everybody. But, well, I guess I'm not sorry enough. Yeah, I did write my thesis on Frankenstein. Um, my master's thesis in particular. Mm-hmm. However, um, I might be writing another two papers this semester about Frankenstein. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just can't stop myself. Um, I might I might get a little bit into that towards the end. Yeah. Um, but yes, Frankenstein is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I first saw a production of it, a 2011 adaptation with Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller playing both Frankenstein and the creature on opposite nights. Alternating nights. Super cool. It's super cool, super good, super impacting. And, Mm. uh, yeah, I've just, I, it's, I, after seeing it, I was just, um, very, I don't know, touched, I guess, by yeah. it. It just it just stuck with me. It just stuck with me um, for, for a plethora of reasons. So shall we crack into this story? And Let's then maybe we'll talk a little bit about the 2011 version. Maybe I'll sure. rant a little bit about the first stage adaptation of it because I hate it. <laughs> uh, what is it with me in loving and then hating things? I don't know. I, I, maybe we'll get to the bottom of that at our Halloween finale. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's zero or a hundred with me that's how it goes that's just how i live my life okay connor tell me what you know yes about the story of so Frankenstein. uh i was recently revisiting the plot outline because my most recent run-in with frankenstein and his dear creature is young frankenstein <laughs> young frankenstein and i figured <laughs> that wasn't a very great kind of uh point of reference for mary shelley's og story so uh, as I understand it, the story actually begins uh, at the end of the story. Is that is that right? Yeah. So it it follow yeah pretty much it follows that good good Victorian mm. bracketing system that yes. that bracketing format where the story is not really told firsthand. It's kind of yeah, it, it, it's just bracketed. It's just bracketed. Mm-hmm. Um, where it starts is with this guy named Walton, who is an English explorer. Yeah. This is done in the time when England was like, let's go figure stuff out. Let's yes. go, let's go discover and invent things that were already there and <laughs> did not need your interference. Um, so Walton has gotten a crew together, gotten his yeah. whole ship together, and they are set in sail for the Antarctic. And he's writing home. He's writing these sisters, or these, these sisters. He's writing a letter to his sister. Yeah. Um, and he's just updating her. I'm just like, oh, we went this far today. We went this far today. And at one point, he goes, so we came across a dude. <laughs> <laughs> We're out here in the Arctic tundra, and we totally came across a dude. And... There is some gay subtext here. Is that because I'm a member of the Alphabet Mafia and I want to read into it, <laughs> kind of like we talked about with Mina and Lucy and Dracula? I don't care. Well, he says things, and uh, <laughs> so he says things. What uh, in in reference to their new kind of uh, uh, companion on their ship? He says, like, man, I haven't had just a friend in a while that I can just talk to and open up with, and it. I mean, yeah, it's exactly. it's very, um, I don't know, it can be tender. interpreted there quite, yeah, tender, absolutely. Let's just say it's tender. It's a grand old Victorian time. That where it is. Where people are just a little bit more tender. Quite. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I want that merch. So, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, Walton makes that specific point of, like, wow, having a companion that, like, gets you on a mental level like this, on an emotional level like mm. this, is uh, indispensable, and I don't want to let this guy go. So, this guy that they picked up is Victor Frankenstein. Yes, he's not doing College so great either. Twinky little dropout. Well, listen, he was never doing super great. Uh, yeah, fair. <laughs> Victor Frankenstein is just a Hamlet of a character. Like, he really is. When I read this book, I was like, oh, my gosh. I haven't seen somebody this emo since I was in junior high and obsessed with Evanescence shopping exclusively at Hot Topic. Like, mm. Victor Frankenstein has eyeliner. Just... 100%. Just... just, yeah. just um, I need you to imagine Victor from this point out as wearing... MCR t-shirts and belt chains like mm. that's the Victor we're working with right yeah absolutely <laughs> that's the Victor we're working with so Victor um it go it goes into Victor kind of taking over his story I mean again it's this framed bracketing system but it is Victor now kind of saying things firsthand mm -hmm. he talks about his family he explains that his mom was kind and influential. His dad was super great. They were wealthy because, of course, they were wealthy because <laughs> these stories are only ever about rich, privileged kids because only rich, privileged kids get up to absolutely no good. <laughs> um, and they adopt this sweet, charming, wonderful girl named Elizabeth. And his mom is like, I hope you two get married. Yeah. And Victor's like, that's his weird cousin. you. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's, it's There's some kind of familiar... Mm ties in there but the mom is like no please it would make me so happy elizabeth is another one of those like lucy mina-esque yeah. kind of characters where she just knows no sin mm -hmm. she's kind and doting and, and victor thinks pretty highly of her actually yeah 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 absolutely true um victor's like i don't see anything wrong with her however victor goes to college yeah. and if frankenstein serves as anything it's definitely a ward against going into biomedical engineering <laughs> and possibly college in general yeah victor shows up to college and he's like so i was talking with my professor the other day and my professor was talking about like galvanism and, and do you know what galvanism is um mm, i could make an educated guess but at the risk of sounding dumb well, you did watch Young Frankenstein, and if you cast your mind back to Frankenstein's classroom, there's a little uh, bit of this happening. Okay. So you remember when he electrifies the frog, and the frog is like... Yeah, he's moving around a little. He's moving around. So that's... I mean, now we know that it's literally just electricity tightening the muscles yeah. and causing it to spasm. But back then they thought it was, like, actually reanimating okay. things. So there's a, there's a little, like, historical accuracy in this. Like, yeah. Mary Shelley absolutely knew that this was going on in the science community where people were like, what if we brought people back from the dead? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and galvanism was a method of kind of doing that. Where yeah, it was sure. like, well, what if we just put a lot of electricity into a body? And this was back when, like, science was essentially cocaine. <laughs> Everyone yeah. was kind of on cocaine and heroin at the time, and so they're like, this is a good idea. Constantly am... saying, hold my beer, left and right. <laughs> yeah, I wish we did that more often. <laughs> Maybe we do. Maybe we do, and we've just discovered so yeah. much that science doesn't have any room to be bad in anymore. Right. But um, I, I totally botched the science of this, by the way. So no, some, somebody out legit. there is like, you ignorant <laughs> fool. 
Um, but this is what I know. So, so Mary Shelley is aware of this and she's kind of writing it. She doesn't, um, it's never explicitly stated how Victor brings this creature to life. Okay. Victor just kind of hears about stuff and becomes obsessed with the possibility of creating life. So he's robbing graveyards, which is also a thing that totally happened back then at this time. Because, yeah, so it was, um... It was illegal to defile a body, essentially, like posthumously, sure. uh, obviously humously as well. But like and posthumously, you couldn't they, they essentially had to be criminals yeah. for these medical students. Medical students needed actual bodies to study, mm-hmm. to autopsy, but they essentially had to be criminals because you couldn't huh. defile a body. So what they would do is there are accounts of serial killers just killing people and selling their bodies. Uh, okay. Medical students were kind of responsible to get their own bodies, so there what? were tons it's of grave robbers. It's a BYOB situation? Basically. Whoa. <laughs> we had to go get... At least I think. At least I think. I've listened to Please a bunch of to podcasts about this. purchase textbook, and this is a BYOB course. You'll and need by three the way, for this semester. <laughs> Could you just imagine? Could oh you just imagine gosh. getting your your textbooks and then being like, "Oh, I see you're in the anatomy class. Well, you also need this," and being just handed like a massive body bag. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, need this. Uh, yeah. So science. Science. So that was kind of happening. So Victor showing up in the middle of the night at a graveyard, just totally digging up dead bodies. That's just how it goes. Not historically inaccurate. Wow. Um, yeah, oh yeah, there were like crime rings <laughs> for the illegal trafficking of dead people. Mamma mia. <laughs> yeah, a lot of this happened in Edinburgh too. That's why Edinburgh <laughs> is so ridiculously haunted. Anyway, so um, Victor succeeds. He drops out of college essentially mm-hmm. to focus on this project. And despite his advisors his counseling advisors being like, maybe don't do that. He's like, I've heard you and I'm purposefully ignoring you. Um, He succeeds in making creature. He makes, he makes a creature. Hmm. Um, And, and it's a very feverish description as well. Victor's just kind of like, Oh my gosh, I did it. Never once in the book does he utter the phrase it's alive or it lives. There's nothing like that. It's just Victor just kind of wakes up realizes that the creature's eyes are like intelligently staring back at him and he just freaks out drops everything <laughs> runs <laughs> he, like, just kinda, <laughs> he, he just kind of he just kind of jumps ship too like he's he's like yeah i'm yeah. out of here bye yeah for that's real. it <laughs> he just scuttles away um victor runs away he passes out he's just classic Victorian Mm -hmm. damsel in distress move of just, oh, I am overcome with my anxiety, so I'm just, you know, (laughs) rascal-macabbed. I'm overwhelmed. I I need to to pass out for a while. Really, though. When he comes to, he's being taken care of by fellow twink Henry Clerval. Hey-oh. Who, uh, again, more gay insinuations, perhaps? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. It's a grand old Victorian time. Henry Clerval is sunshine personified. Um, And it's a shame that he doesn't really show up in a lot of adaptations, but I understand Mm. why. Um, Clerval, however, doesn't get it. He's not on Victor's mental playing field. Uh, Victor won't talk about what he did. 
So Clerval is just kind of like, I sure wish I knew what my friend Victor is going on about, but he's just so <laughs> upset, and I just feel so bad for him. So we'll just take him out to the countryside and see if some fresh air can't make this better. Um, he's too really, Victor is too really weak to notice, but the monster, well, the creature, is catching up to him. Yeah. And... Victor, essentially, he comes home, or at least close to home, in time to see a maid is being put on trial for killing his brother, his, Victor's yeah, brother. His little brother, right? Little, little kid brother, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and Elizabeth is distraught because yeah. Elizabeth is like... This maid, I've known this maid forever. She would never do this. She would never do this. Yeah, exactly. She would never do this. But they convict her anyways, and they hang her. She had a necklace from the brother on a person Mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. That was the uh, indicting evidence, so Ah. to speak. And so, yes, yes, you're totally right. Um, So Elizabeth just goes into a despair about this, and she's like, there's nothing good left in this world if good people, good innocent people can be so killed. And you're just like, ooh, Elizabeth, Mm. that's some bad foreshadowing for you, my gal. Yeah, hang Um, tight for a bit. And Victor, even though he can't, like, really confirm it, he, like, he just, like, knows. He knows it's his creature. Uh-huh. He's like, oh, no, I, I know that this is my fault. And he knows it, and he's not. He doesn't speak up at the trial. Mm. And so he just kind of, like, lives with this guilt of, like, man, I defied God and nature by building a thing, and then the thing is killing people, and I'm mm-hmm. not speaking up about it, and I'm just, ah! And Victor just kind of has, you know, more Victorian breakdowns. Um, eventually the monster just catch up to him. Yeah. And confronts him. He's like, hey, you gotta listen to me for a while. Hey, you. Yeah, yeah. He he gets his attention. We hear the creature's side of the story, mm-hmm. which is that the creature waking up in a laboratory to his creator just ditching him <laughs> has to go and forage his way through Goodbye, the forest. <laughs> Goodbye, son. Goodbye. I'll see you never. And uh, this creature is like, oh, it's going on. Papa, why? <laughs> Father, <laughs> no. Um, so the creature essentially finds his way through Switzerland, Swiss forests. It's yes. all France and Switzerland. Because um, the creature speaks French, don't you know? And, yeah. uh, and And speaks it actually quite well because he stumbles into... It was the first language he heard. It it is it is and what a what a language to let that be your first really I mean oui. <laughs> I mean yeah Sorry, I was <laughs> using some of my French there well wow. yeah he's hiding so out for a long that. while like in this family shed and just kind of observing yeah. them yeah and and this family is no ordinary family it's a professor who essentially mm-hmm. got run out of town uh, during some riot where they were like kicking all the intelligent people out. I forget yeah. exactly which one. I, I want to say it's like some Bolshevik revolution or something like that. Some Something mm-hmm. like that. Um, yes, I did write my thesis about this, okay? But I wrote my thesis about a stage adaptation, which doesn't spend yeah. too much time on this story. So, meh. Um, <laughs> I, I would like for people to come after me and fight me about getting hung up on these little nuances because... <laughs> I don't know. I just, I, I dare you. I dare you. It's the Virgo with me. I dare you. So this professor is blind 
And the creature starts making connections and starts, like, learning the language and learning about philosophy from this blind professor who can't see him, can't tell that he's an eight-foot-tall reanimated corpse. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and by the reason, by the reason, by the way, the reason that the creature is an eight-foot-tall goth prince reanimated corpse is because in order for Victor to put this body together... He had to make everything bigger so mm. that he could see it and he could work on it because muscles and veins and other things uh, are so yeah, they, small and tiny. And they atrophy too after. Exactly, exactly. Ooh, so he had ooh, to ooh, he ooh. had to make them bigger so that he could see it. So this this thing really is hulking and skulking. Dang. Absolutely. With by the way, translucent skin, luxurious black hair, and big watery yellow eyes. That's the picture we're looking at. And voluptuous teeth. I need you, <laughs> Connor. So help me, I don't want to run this expression. podcast by myself, but I will. <laughs> oh my god, expression! <laughs> huh. Anyways, so no, Connor. Wrong you guys, monster. I wish I I wish you could see Connor's shit eating green right yeah. now. It's pure and tender, and <laughs> Connor, you're great. So, um, where was I? Oh, yes. So the creature, um, the creature becomes extremely educated. Uh, The creature Mm. reads Paradise Lost. Have you ever tried to read Paradise Lost, Connor? No. (laughs) It's boring. (laughs) I read it this year. I read it this year. No. But then again, I like this. So. No, I, I, I haven't, I haven't given it a chance. I just know it's. Paradise Lost. Well, when my friend gives me my copy back, you can borrow it. And Woo. you can see... Yeah, some some parts are kind of boring. So, from, <laughs> from Paradise Lost, the creature gets this concept of, like, creating life. Like, God created Adam, and Satan was thrown out. And so he's developing these concepts of what's good, what's evil, mm-hmm. what, who deserves to live, who deserves to be in paradisiacal glory who deserves to be cast out he's trying to figure all these things out and he's trying to do good and so he will like chop wood and do other chores around this house to try and help this family but when the time comes to like show himself the rest of the family freaks out because he's an eight foot tall reanimated corpse yeah it's gonna happen and people were just so judgmental based they on were. looks those days. Just because he's um, a giant animated dead body. Jeez. I know. That doesn't mean you get to throw rocks at him yeah. or shoot him. So I, I think actually the creature does get shot at. Either it's um, in the book or it's in the 1823. Yes. He does. Uh, I think it's creature after getting chased out of here. Uh-huh. He does get shot. And then he goes shot. and burns back and down he's the like, house. Ow! These people mm-hmm. were living in. Yeah. So in in the play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, folks, I got all my sacred texts right came here. Prepared. I came. I came prepared. So there's a fantastic monologue um, when the creature gets run out of this town, uh, where he's talking about all the things that he's learned from history Mm -hmm. and he goes oh let me let me let me he says what do they do when they feel like this heroes romans what do they do i know they plot they revenge Mm. 
So the creature is, again, in his emotional maturity, he's not great, but he's also built as a man. So there's just this weird, like, how much information does he actually have? How much moral information does he actually have? What's his education like? And it's really splotchy. And you see it right here. He's just like... But I was nice to you, and you threw me out, and I don't understand, and I don't understand what to do with this pain, so I'm just going to set this on fire. Mm. Kills the family. Wamp, wamp. Oop. Not so great. Um, He explains that he also accidentally, question mark, kind of kills William. I think he just wanted William to shut up. I think it was more of like a Mice and Men Lenny kind of situation. And then was like, uh, and kind of shoves the locket on Justine, and Mm. is like, I do feel bad about that. Um... (laughs) And to cap this all off, the creature goes, so anyways, um, I would like a girlfriend. Yeah. And Victor is like, no, no, I'm not going to, no, you were, you kill people. I'm not going to contribute to this. And the creature is like, but if you make me girlfriend, I will go away. And I will never talk to you again. Yeah. And I know that you want that. And, and if you don't, I'm going to kill more people. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah, yeah. And, and the creature is like, in case that wasn't good enough for you, <laughs> I will destroy you. Um, the likes in me you have never seen. So anyways, um, eventually Victor is like, yeah, okay, let's do this. So Victor heads out to the Orkney Islands, some rainy Scottish isle, and... Uh, and starts building this female creature and has another breakdown. Mm-hmm. This time it's about the, which this is the stupidest thing ever. So he's building this woman. He, she, she's basically complete. Yeah. Basically completed. She's just, I guess there are like a little couple of things to, to actually reanimate her. She's basically complete. And then Victor has this freak out moment of just like, oh my gosh, but she has a uterus. And they could create more beasts. Mm. Oh, so many more monsters. And Victor gets hung up essentially on monster sex. (laughs) Doesn't ever occur to him. Which implies, which implies that he gave the creature a working dick. (sighs) Vic, man, come on. And the female creature a working uterus. And it's like, you could have just Leave that part out. Or maybe just don't use... Fertile things. But. I don't know. Which, which, yeah, it also begs the question of just like, how do you know that uterus is actually functioning? Anyways, yeah. whatever. Point. We're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about the part where Victor, realizing this, goes ape and destroys he this do. female creature. It is, it is not a fun thing to read. It's a, it's a very oh, jarring kind of moment because the way that it's written is actually kind of like a. It's a little more sexualized of a frenzy. He just kind of describes how worked up he is over this. And it just kind of has those undertones of being slightly on the more sexual side, which is very unfortunate to be pairing with female. Right. Directed murder. So Hmm. it's not great. And he chops her back up. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just (laughs) rips her, rips her right apart. And that's what I wrote my thesis about. So Ah, anyways, yum, yum. Um, yeah, we'll get back to that later. So that scene actually is very important to me. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to gloss over it, but it's very important to me. And now I'm glossing over it. So the creature comes in and is like, well, you know what this means. Yeah. You know what this means. Do you know what he says? He's like, I- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get him now. I'm going to kill people. 
Nah, kind of. He His last words as Victor is, like, getting out of Dodge is, I will be with you on your wedding night. Yeah, that's He what just, like, locks eyes and is like, you killed what I loved? I'm coming for what you love. Mm-hmm. Um, and Victor is like, yeah, sure, whatever. He goes home and he's like, Elizabeth, we got to get married right now. And Elizabeth is like, yay, weird, but okay, cool. And then marries his cousin and then, for some unfathomable reason, Victor's like, okay, now you stay here. I have to go hunt for this creature that I know is yeah. going to be around here. He's up all night, like, with his gun. He's like, where are you, yeah. giant man? Yeah. And then he, like, he goes into his bedroom where he left his new wife to find her <gasps> strangled. Wimp, wimp. Wimp, wimp. Um, and the window opened, and Victor's like, no! Ah, frick, so, who could have done this? Who could have? <laughs> who could have seen this coming? <laughs> um, so he basically, like, jumps out the wind, ditches everything to go and hunt after this creature. So that's where Victor's story kind of stops, and it goes mm-hmm. back to Walton. And Walton is like, so are you saying that it's good or bad to, like, go off in scientifical pursuits and victor is like well i wouldn't recommend it but and then like walton's crew is getting all disheartened and they're like maybe we shouldn't and then victor turns around and is like how dare you like you need to put scientific pursuits above everything and be prepared to give your life for it and walton is like that's an interesting tone to take (laughs) walton's kind of confused by it and granted so are we given to the sharks yeah, so unfortunately, <laughs> Victor dies. He does. In Walton's arms. Ah, in Walton's bed. Mm. Um, he dies. He, yeah. The twink dies. The twink dies. Um, <laughs> and Walton is like, <sighs> good company is just so hard to come by. And Walton turns around. Walton turns his whole thing around. But while he's turning around and while he's making his way back home, he sees the creature. Mm. And the creature's like, yo, you seen my twink dad? And Walton's like, yeah, he just died. And the he creature's did. like, ah. well, and the creature just goes off. And Doesn't Walton it? is okay, like, that's book, weird. Let's go back like, to England. I didn't mean to be evil. I'm going to go light myself on fire. See ya. Pretty much. Pretty, well, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. The creature's like, well, I don't know that I have purpose anymore. Ah, this was a good life. Time to die. This now. was a bad life. Uh, time to die now. So yeah, that's uh, that's what happens. However, in the play, mm. in the play, um, they take out Walton. Walton's not in the play. There's no bracketing system. It goes from the creature's experience essentially. Um, after the creature kills the family, the professor and his family, it cuts to Victor and his family looking for William and Elizabeth being like. Why are you so elusive? Why don't you talk to me? And Victor's like, because I'm gay. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He says, because I'm working. But that's kind of um, what he says. But that's kind yeah. of what he says. That's kind of how mm-hmm. he comes in. That's at least how Benedict Cumberbatch kind of plays it. He yeah. kind of plays it. Gay or asexual. Mm. Indifferent and towards Elizabeth. And <laughs> working. Which yes. I can relate to. So mm. the, the the asexual and working part. Mm. Um... So that's Frankenstein. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, in the, at the end of the play, it's actually a really pretty scene. I, I like it. Where uh, Victor has his, 
mush pack his what are they called the dog sleds the dog sleds yeah they're in the arctic and victor is dying mm-hmm. absolutely like he's just run ragged to the point of exhaustion and the creature is like still going <laughs> the creature is like not a, having a problem mm-hmm. creature catches up to victor and they he the creature has a conversation at victor because again victor's kind of dying and mutters like a few words but the creature tries to resuscitate him and having resuscitated him he's like listen this is why i killed elizabeth and i hate that i did that but it's your fault oh. <laughs> essentially is what he says Man. um and uh and then Victor is like, well, what, what do we do? What do we do from here? And the creature's like, well, we're just going to chase each other until both of us die, I guess. And they go off essentially together out the back. And it's a. Uh, it's a happy ending. Not it's not the happy ending that you oh. want. This is not the gay rom-com you wanted. <laughs> it's not even a rom-com. So that's Frankenstein. Mm, yummy. Nice and dark. There at the there end. There you go. Yeah, yeah. It's significantly, it's about half the size of Dracula. Okay. Yeah. 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 It uh, didn't take me very long to get through. I was uh, very much in love with it. Mm, naturally. I love Frankenstein. I'm probably going to comfort read it again this Halloween <laughs> because I can. It's a good read, as I so, yeah. have heard. Um, great. Do you want to uh, let's talk a little bit about... Some of your takeaways and maybe some sure. points there. Sure, sure, sure. Do we want a pee break, a sponsor break? Yeah, yeah. Let's just... let's have a word from our sponsors and we'll come back and uh, just talk a little bit about some of these takeaways. So- I was working in the lab late one night When my eyes beheld an eerie sight For my monster from his slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the monster mash I'll call it the monster mash It is the monster mash Did I mention the monster mash? From my laboratory in the castle east To the master bedroom where the vampires feast The ghouls all came from their humble abode To get a jolt from my electrodes If you know what I mean They did the monster mash I might have mentioned it's called the monster mash It's the goddamn monster mash Don't forget about the monster mash don't forget to tip your waiters, either. That's one of their primary sources of income. And if you see a monster in real life, you should tell him to go away. And it's the monster mad. Don't forget. Hey, we're back. Wow. Woo! Oh, did you guys yeah, hear that, so that ad break? Woof. That ad break. Pretty was heavy something. stuff. I bet it was. I bet it was, too. So uh, let's talk about... I to hear it. Dr. Vic and his big buddy. Let's... <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like the children's version. Yeah. Dr. Vic and his big buddy. <laughs> I'm writing it now. <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that. Uh, anyways. <laughs> well, here's the thing, Connor. We've heard me talk and talk and talk excessively. 
give me your thoughts. Because we, yeah. you know now about monster culture. You're a smart man yourself. Give me your thoughts. I have your been known takeaways to be a smart man on occasion. Um, I've yeah. seen you do it. Thank you. I think this, um, in just in revisiting the story and some kind of takeaways for me, it actually um, very much reminded me of uh, Oedipus in a lot of ways, obviously, oh. in some pretty different ways. But um, something I often think about when thinking about or discussing uh, the story of Oedipus is the idea of fate versus free will. Um, and mm. in this story, it translates more so kind of at we, as we were talking about in the beginning, who is the real monster here? Uh, where can we place the blame for these horrible things that happen to these innocent people? Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, the, the, the quick and easy, you know, place to point your finger could be the monster and say, well, this is... This is the monster. These are the hands that chose to strangle these people and so on and so forth. But then we got to take a couple steps back and, you know, check out the context of the situation and yeah. uh, take a look at Victor, who was being incredibly irresponsible and <laughs> did a really bad job at protecting the people he loved, presumably for the sake really of his own reputation. Um, yeah. Not a cute look, sweetie. Not a cute look, sweetie. Not especially look, when sis. you uh, like that innocent maid lady who you've probably known for a while just died. Justine. Uh, Hi. Because your little brother got the dead. So I don't know. It it uh the the fate versus free will question for me kind of defaults to both of of our uh, two monsters here. You know. Um, how much of this is was inevitable and how much of it was poor decisions or um, uneducated decisions, I guess. Yes. Uh, I, yeah. I don't know. I, I, in, in revisiting the plot, I, I think I really want to just spend more time with the story to pick up on the nuance and um, kind of secondary meanings of things. But it, it really does feel like if Victor was a better scientist and human being, this would have gone differently. <laughs> yeah, don't drop out of college, kids. Yeah, kids. Um, <laughs> and don't go into biomedical engineering. <laughs> yeah, or grave so, rob. Or All grave three rob. of those are don't equally bad rob. things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I think that is very much the conversation that happens around Frankenstein sure. nowadays. Mm. Is... And um, I could take you on a walk through history of the different perceptions of Frankenstein because I've done a lot of research. Um, I will spare you. I will <laughs> condense my findings. Um, but I think nowadays we there's been this shift. So this is actually one of the papers that I'm writing right now is yeah. is the shift in sympathy extended. So in in the novel. Mary Shelley actually does a pretty decent job of extending sympathy towards both Victor and the creature. Granted, Victor is a miserable little Hamlet Romeo-esque twink <laughs> that perhaps some of us in the modern era would rather not sympathize with. But he's written in such a way that you, you get the sense of how childlike both of them, actually. Both of them are. Right. They're both relatively innocent in terms of like, oh, I didn't know my actions was going to do that. I, ah, and What's it's the kind consequences? Of that, like, 
I don't, what are consequences? What? How are things even connected? It's it's very it's very childlike. It, mm. it it reads very much as children with too much power that really don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Um. And so right now, what I'm looking at is the shift in sympathy from how do we get to this novel to where in the first iterations of this story. So there's the 1823 stage adaptation. That was the first one that ever happened. Written by a guy, Rin, Richard Brinsley Peak, who renamed his play Presumption. Hmm. That's literally where he's coming at this from, with, with Presumption. So he paints Victor as kind of like an iconic romantic, like capital R, romantic hero. Yeah. Okay. Where he's, he's tormented by his own decisions, but the creature really only exists to torment Victor. Hmm. Um, and they both die at the end. Wow. And in this version, the creature doesn't speak at all. This is where muteness is introduced. Okay. Um, the creature devolves from this eloquent and thoughtful and very human being into, in the dramatis personae of this script, he's literally referred to as the demon. Mm. And they refer to Victor as a, a kind of Dr. Faustus, where he's just raising the devil and his work is demonic. His What he's doing is just is just evil. Yeah. Um, and so the fact that the creature comes and gleefully, the script describes it as malignant joy, gleefully kills the people around Frankenstein. Woof. The motivations aren't necessarily clear because the creature doesn't get to explain it to Victor, to the audience, to anyone. He doesn't even think out loud to himself. He's just kind of killing the people around Frankenstein until they're both cor- cornered. And Frankenstein essentially incites an avalanche that kills them both. And that's how the play ends. And Mary Shelley was like, okay, that was interesting. Like, there's a, a record of her being like, well, the story, uh, you lost control of the story there, kiddo. But I mean, <laughs> the audience seemed to liked it. So it, uh, she she was kind of like, you you get, I got the sense. I got the sense that she wasn't super jazzed about it, but she sure. also didn't hate it. Absolutely. Okay. okay. I hate it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then we see in the 1930s version, which I hope we do get to cover. Maybe we mm-hmm. should do like a back-to-back Bela Lugosi Boris Karloff episode <laughs> or something like <laughs> that. Cool. I don't know. Next Halloween. Next Halloween. Right. Um, but we see in that version, again, another mute creature. And it's that point that, you know, the creature becomes the monster. Not just a creature, but a monster. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's hard to find that. I mean, it, it's not hard, but it's not easy to find the humanity of the monster and so there's lots of thinky pieces just like oh this poor beast essentially and i i love nick deer's 2011 production because of how much soul is given back to the creature yeah it's at the cost of victor's soul actually because victor ends up being painted as just this miserable arrogant bastard yeah (laughs) honest to goodness bastard is a really great way to describe him he's just especially the way that cumberbatch plays him is Mm. just so full of arrogance and so (laughs) full of just dismissive disregard to everybody and he doesn't care about anything he just he's blindsided absolutely not blindsided blinded by just what he wants and so he has no problems destroying this creature um his feminine creature because He's freaked out by the implications of uh, breeding, essentially. Um, 
he hates it, what he perceives to be uh, an oncoming army of monsters, essentially. Yeah. That's all he sees. Yeah, it's yeah. not great. It's not great. Um, but the creature, the, the play spends a lot more time on the creature's story. And so it starts out with a very beautiful and very moving um, physical movement piece hmm. where the creature essentially emerges oh yeah i really I, I remember that part it's kind of exact looking thing and he learns to walk by himself yeah um and and cumberbatch and johnny lee miller um they talk about their inspirations for the creature and cumberbatch took his inspiration from stroke victims wow relearning how to use their bodies miller got his inf- inspiration from his two-year-old son huh it's a very interesting. I highly recommend it, guys. You got to watch both of them. You got to watch both of them because there's just a difference. There's a difference. Uh, Cumberbatch's creature is much more cerebral and much more just like trying to think about things, and so he just kind of lashes out violently. And Miller's is a tactile, childlike, just coming in, busting to sort of every scene, and it's nice. it's raw and it's emotional and it's beautiful and. And uh, I just love it so much. Um, so that's one of the papers that I'm writing about. It's just the, this weird shift in sympathy for who who we care about to succeed more. Who we want to see have the most soul, I guess yeah. is what you could say. Um, which, when I say soul, like that doesn't have any academic standing necessarily, but I'm hoping here it will have some poetic standing. Right. Um, the other paper that I'm doing that I, I probably will do is actually comparing and contrasting Frankenstein with uh, Alex Garland's Ex Machina. Have you seen Ex oh, Machina? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah, yeah, so is M. So huh. uh, <laughs> um, there's a lot of connections, I think. Um, and actually, oh, very much here's, so. Here's the funny story is, so I'm in this class right now. This is the class that it's for. Um, it's about reading humans through AI. And so throughout the semester, we've been going through different robots and different artificial intelligences and comparing them with different articles, um, either about those things or just kind of around the topic of it. And when we talked about Ex Machina, um, I, I well, I'm known in the class because we we started straight out of the gate and I like slammed my fist on the table and I was like, everything from here on out will be compared to Frankenstein because Frankenstein <laughs> originated AI. That 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 is Frankenstein's yeah. legacy. So now I'm known as that person in the class where they're just like, oh, Vale's gonna have an opinion about Frankenstein <laughs> for sure. So <laughs> I, as part of this class, you got to lead some discussion. So I'm leading the discussion on Ex Machina and I specifically gear it comparing Ex Machina moments to Frankenstein moments and in, in specifically the 2011 version. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone was like, oh my gosh, for real. I, no, I, I want to make this <laughs> I was like, clear. Yes! I, I completely agree with you, but I'd love to hear just kind of a micro argument as to why you think this is... Um, artificial intelligence in the same way that creating, you know, a robot or a cyborg with yeah. AI. I, I, I would love to hear your parallels there. Yeah, so, well, well thanks for asking, because I hate shoving my opinions on other people, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is why I started a podcast. So. Yeah, same. Um, so, yeah. Um, my, I, I kind of think of it as a triangle, Yeah. where it's like, in this parallel in particular, it's Ex Machina, Frankenstein, and at the top is Paradise Lost. Okay. Um, that's kind of my, 
my take in any parallel, in any created robot AI uh, with Frankenstein, it's simply the fact that a human has subverted the natural law of procreation. Right. And has created an artificial life, but it acts as organically mm-hmm. as another human being. Um, and so there's a whole lot of conversation when, when that kind of happens and when you have an artificial intelligence that often presents itself as like a fully grown adult, right. you have to start asking yourself, what's the moral accountability though? Like how, how much accountability can that artificial life take for itself? Therefore, how do we read its actions if it reacts violently towards humans? Mm. What do we do in that sort of scenario? So you have something like Terminator where it's like all this artificial intelligence wants to kill human beings. Yeah, right off the bat. <laughs> right off the bat. Um, you have something like Wally, where it's yeah. very charming and tender and there's no threat to humanity whatsoever about <laughs> it. Except they're totally eating people on the axiom. Anyways, that's a different that's a different story. Mm. So it's kind of the same thing with Frankenstein, where it's like the creature didn't come out of the gate swinging violently. The creature came out of the gate and was hurt mm. over and over and over and over again, and then was taught through mankind's history before before being taught about morality, before having the emotional intelligence that you build up. And Dana Miller, I want you to talk about how children develop morality because I know she's got a good rant on that so I'm we sure. will have yes. her on to talk about this um, <laughs> I you see that very well with Frankenstein where his right, Frankenstein with the creature where his basis of morality is so skewed mm. that when he's hurt and he's tossed out he's like well where do I do where do I go forward and his only frame of reference is all the evil that mankind has done. Yeah. He has no other moral context. So it's like, how how do you hold that being accountable? Yeah. Which when goes, a, I think, to your point. It's, it's a child with a giant body that, as you were saying, is immediately and consistently getting rejected. Exactly. It's very, I mean, like I kind of mentioned this before, but it's very Lenny from Mice and Men. I'm mm. just, how do you do that? So in... That's that's my main parallel, right, is that it's just yeah. the conversations of moral accountability, the conversations of the ethicality of creating life, especially life that did not ask to be created, um, <laughs> which I think is like a complaint that like a lot of these created intelligences will level to their creator of just like, why? Why did you <laughs> grant me this thing I did not ask for? I am cursed. I am cursed because of it. And and granted, a lot of millennials say that too. So <laughs> Fair, yeah, <laughs> a lot yeah, of Gen Zers. <laughs> it's a relatable plight. Um, to quote BDG, who asks for that? <laughs> who asks uh. for that? Um, but in, in my look at it, I'm almost taking a very religious point of view to it because that's something that the creature does bring up is he, he tells Frankenstein, he's like, I should have been your Adam. Like if you created me, I should have been your Adam, but it's Satan who I empathize with because Satan was cast out. In fact, actually I'm worse than Satan because Satan at least had fellow devils. Mm. Satan had pals to commiserate with and I and lonely, I am solitary, and he says, I am detested. Mm. 
and it's just this uh, this creature is just losing it and all this creature really wants is companionship all this creature really wants is to be quote unquote a real boy yeah so it's like not fair you it's can't not help but fair and with the creature Exactly. So it's it's just it's not only have you subverted God in creating life, but it's also this concept of eating from the fruit of the tree of knowledge, knowledge of good and evil. And evil. That's a, ham- a mouthful. <laughs> oh, gosh, it's like saying supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Exactly. There's no fast way to say it. Um, and so even though the creature has read Paradise Lost, has referenced it um, in in calling himself Adam and and then Satan. Um, with Ex Machina, and maybe we have a whole other episode about Ex Machina, and we bring M back because it's yeah. an Alex Garland, and we know how M feels about Alex Garland. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Alex Garland can't walk two steps without bringing in some kind of religious imagery, and Ex Machina is so layered with all of that. Big time. And not only that, but we also talked about Adam and Eve when we talked about 28 Days Later. Mm-hmm. Where it's that concept of how does life go on? How do we... There, There's so much pastoral imagery in both 28 Days Later and Ex Machina, actually. And that concept of walking out of yeah. what you know. Um, and, and in the case of the creature, the creature ends up sympathizing more with Satan because the creature didn't get the chance to walk out. The creature yeah. was thrust out. Mm-hmm. He didn't even eat any fruit hell. or anything. He didn't. He didn't, which is why I think the creature is innocent. Is mm. there was no option for him to eat of the fruit. He was just yeah. tossed. No knowledge or Eden, big guy. Go eat some no, berries and nuts. That. And then he did for a <laughs> year or two. Berries and cream. I'm a little lad who likes berries and cream. He did eat berries and acorns. And cream, yes. <laughs> and cream, I suppose. <laughs> Anyways. Anyways, so that's that's my rant about that. Um for anybody who cares to know, um, I, the reason the reason why I'm not bringing up my thesis right now is because my thesis was geared more towards the production of Frankenstein, but it was more specifically geared towards the fact that there was a female body on stage being mutilated. Mm. So it doesn't really tie back into Frankenstein. It's more of just like, hey, in the context of Frankenstein, this is what a female body means. Yeah. So for those of you who want to know more about my thesis, just come find me. And of course, I'll talk to you. I'll give it to you. I will send you my <laughs> thesis. I will send you my hideous progeny. Um, and I will send you whatever papers I've written that you want. But that's why I'm not respectfully blabbing about <laughs> my previous endeavors. <laughs> Focusing fair. it on the my wife, Mary Shelley's story um, and all that it implies. Mm. So. Yeah, and, and what a story. I <sighs> we've, we've mentioned Paradise Lost quite a few times here, and we've also mentioned Paradise Lost in quite a few uh, of our previous yeah. episodes. So in one of my final questions, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and answer it. Why Do it. does Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster have so much longevity and cultural impact? I think yes. maybe it's for the same reason why we find ourselves comparing it to Paradise Lost, and we find the yeah. monster... Um, as you know, captivated as as anyone else, it's because we strive to find the humanity in these stories. Um, uh. And I think that you know the story of Paradise Lost of being thrust from the Garden of Eden is something that a lot of people feel in a lot of ways, whether or not you are 
Christian or otherwise, it's it's a familiar feeling uh, and one that comes with growing up and self-actualizing. And poor old Frankenstein's monster just had to skip all that and just be be an adult or a sociopath. And so he went with both. <laughs> Um, <laughs> he, he said I will be both Yeah. father said I could do anything so <laughs> I decided to become an abomination yeah <laughs> yeah so. and I, I, God has let me live to see another day and I'm about to make it everybody else's problem <laughs> uh, musings of a monster <laughs> monster yeah I, I think you nailed it right on the head I think um, the longevity of any piece is going to probably connect back to, are we still dealing with the problem? Hmm. I think we're still dealing with issues of empathy. Yeah. Folks. (laughs) (laughs) We're dealing with issues of morality, of what does it mean to be human? We're dealing with our back and forth between how far into the unknown should we go before we totally lose ourselves. Yeah. And I think we're just so obsessed with this concept of humanity, what makes us human, what is a human, that we're going to keep batting it around forever. And that's why, like, Frankenstein is not the... It's the mother of its ilk, Mm. but its ilk is extensive. Sci-fi is massive. And (laughs) not only sci-fi, but AI fiction, robot fiction, is just so consistent, so prevalent in media of all kinds and it's because we're still just trying to figure this out we're trying to figure out what makes us human Mm. can you create it beyond the normal means yeah and should you and should you Mm. yeah that's the other thing is the golden question (laughs) just because we Uh, can doesn't mean we should but exactly let's learn the hard way anyway exactly (laughs) (laughs) Shoot, that line comes up in Jurassic Park and I think in Terminator where someone's like, you've been so long trying to figure out if you could that you did not realize if you should. And the answer like is that. usually, mm, probably not. And the answer is, shouldn't have done that. Yeah, uh, maybe not. Should not have done that. And that's why I relate to Victor <laughs> so much. So my, I mean, my top three characters that I find extremely relatable um, is Faustus, Faustus. Frankenstein, and Dr. Jekyll. They're all idiots (laughs) who were just like, this isn't enough. I must have more cursed knowledge. Nah, they're just quirky. So quirky. So quirky. (laughs) So cute and charming. Um, But yeah, I, that's... uh, I will extend some sympathy and grace towards Victor, not just because we both probably shop at Hot Topic, but because I get it. Yeah. I get wanting to know so badly if you can. And when you feel like you're on the right path, you're just like, why would anyone stop me? But you have to be prepared for what you create. When you send something out into the world, it's going to have an effect. Hmm. So you need to parent it. You need to watch out for it. You need to make sure that it is going forth in a good spirit or else you have contributed to the evil and the ills in the world. And no artist wants to do that. But if you're too selfish an artist, They'll do that. that's what you're going to do. Mm. So don't be that way. Yeah, make good art. Make good art. <laughs> parent! 
<laughs> parent and make sure the things that you create have a semblance of morality to them. Mm. Anyways, Couldn't have said it better that's myself. My, that's my rant. So it's a good rant. It's anyways, good rant. I'm going to lock myself back in my lab and <laughs> go back to writing my two Frankenstein papers. Brilliant. I'm just going to see if I, I can't this? find any spare body parts and build a friend. I think that's my big takeaway from today. Yeah, I just want a big buddy. Just go to Build-A-Bear, dude. No, I'm going to build my own bear, dude. Yeah, uh, Build-A-Bear, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, thanks for joining us on The Good, The Rad, and The Spooky. Um, Please remember to tip your waiters, build your bears, and give uh, give them some life knowledge if you can. Yeah, 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 yeah. You should do that. Yeah, and stay spooky while you're at it. Oh, for sure. All right, see you next week. The Good, the Rad, and the Spooky is a passion project by Connor Wood and Vale McComb. Now recently produced by M. Knowlton. You can find us on the Twitter at Good Rad Spooky Podcast. And you can also find us on Instagram at Good Rad Spooky Podcast. A very special thanks to Ned Wilcock for the logo.